there's a quote about her belief about strikes. And she said, quote, my conception of the strike of the future is not to strike and go out and starve, but to strike and remain in and take possession of the necessary property of production. One of her most famous articles is entitled Two Tramps. What she advocated was, quote, propaganda by the deed, which was this philosophy that said that only violent direct action or the threat of such action will ultimately win the demands of the workers. And she was considered extremely dangerous. There's like some official documentation in late, much later in the 1920s that described Lucy as, quote, more dangerous than a thousand rioters. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women in history. I am Sarah Gorski. I'm Sam Eggers. And I'm Chloe Skye. Today, I am bringing you Lucy Parsons. Have you guys heard of Lucy Parsons? No. No, I had not heard the name before you texted us her name that you were covering her. Well, I hadn't heard her name either, and then she kind of came up in one of my news feeds at some point, and I screenshotted it, and then I went back and looked at her, and I... I'm crazy about her, and I'm so excited to talk about her with you guys today. I, I do want to start with saying that, on record, Lucy did not like people digging into her private life. Uh, at one point, there's a quote from her that says, quote, I am not a candidate for office, and the public have no right to my past. I amount to nothing to the world, and people care nothing of me. I am battling for a principle, end quote. So the details about her personal life are kind of subject to dispute. There's not like a ton of information, especially about her early life before her very public and political activities. Um, so I always like to like say that at the beginning of the podcast. So Lucy Parsons was born in Virginia in, 18, supposedly born in Virginia in 1851 as Lucia Carter. Her mother was an African-American slave owned by a white man named Tolliver, who may have been Lucy's father, says a source. However, Lucy specifically denied that she was the child of a former slave of African descent, claiming she was born in Texas and her parents were Mexican and Native American. And she often described herself in public when she did speak about it, as a Spanish Indian maiden. Oh, wow. Hmm. Um, and even even on her death certificate, her parents' names were listed as Pedro Diaz and Marites Gonzalez, both born in Mexico. So On her death certificate? On her or? death certificate. So, But not her birth certificate. Well, I mean, I guess she, maybe she wouldn't even have one of like, those. Like, qu question mark if that even existed. Uh so there's all this, like, who was she actually born to? She said she was born to these people, but then there's some records that indicate that she, her, that her mother was a slave and she was possibly the, the child of, you know, slave rape. Interesting. Is she claiming that she wasn't black at all? I like that. The, dis the description of herself in that, in that way would indicate that, that you're correct. So if she described herself as a Spanish Indian maiden, she would not be claiming African descent at all. However, she's described by other people as mulatto. Her photos, she, she looks dark-skinned. And her and her, I mean, we'll find out in a second, but her and her husband suffered from a lot of discrimination because there was, it was an interracial marriage. So mm. I think she's like generically known as a, a black woman, but then didn't describe herself that way, which I find very interesting. And But because there's not more details about it, I just kind of can't even 
speculate as to why or what the the truth behind all that is. But isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's, that sounds almost like the OJ complex of like I'm not I'm not black. I don't want to be considered black. Right. I uh, understand like the the way black people are discriminated against and are second class citizens and I I don't want to be associated with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Not to compare her to OJ Simpson. <laughs> but, you know, I, in no other way do they <laughs> have similarities. Kind of I would. <laughs> Uh, well, so um, she was born in Virginia, and then in 1863, Tolliver, the slave master, relocated to Waco, Texas, and brought his slaves, uh, which included Lucia's mother and Lucia. In that version of the story, in the other version of the story, I don't know what the alternate <laughs> way she got to Texas was. So supposedly when she's in Texas, she works as a seamstress and a cook for, for different white families, and she lived with or possibly was even married to a former slave named Oliver Gathing. And she also apparently at that time had an infant which died uh, at birth. But there's not any solid records on that. She never really spoke to that. This is all kind of still speculation. Then in 1871, she marries Albert Parsons. Is that a familiar name to either of you? Mm-mm. No. All right. Then you're going to find out more about him, too. He is also a a very loud person in American history. Uh, So uh, Albert is a former Confederate soldier, but who's like since done like this total 180 and become an absolute uh, advocate for black rights. And he falls in love with Lucia and they get married. He had been like working really diligently on registering black voters and he was shot in the leg because of it. And he was threatened with lynching. Uh, and when he married Lucy, they were like, we got to get out of here because we are, our lives are threatened because of our interracial marriage. So, so they're like, let's get out of here. And they go to Chicago. <laughs> Good idea. And during the trip uh, to Chicago, Lucia changes her first name to Lucy. So she's now Lucy. So her and Albert are both incredibly active politically and they both become a part of the movement that's like generically known as anarchism uh as well as the big union i i how do i segue into this segment because it's such a giant i feel like i didn't give some background about some of these movements because they're they're absolutely huge um so like we're like was there actual policy anarchy or that's just like how white people said it was well there was the labor party which is kind of what they were a part of and there were different divisions in it and anarchists were one of the divisions so i'll try to kind of go through and explain and i'll encourage everybody including listeners that you know if you hear something that's interesting look it up because it is a huge part of american history that i think mostly was never taught even though it's super relevant to a lot of things and especially relevant right now and this time when we're kind of re-examining the, the top one percent and who makes the rules and who benefits from the rules and slave you know slave labor not getting paid much for for what you're working um this is really what what albert and lucy both really fought for so in july i'll pick it up in in july of 1877 the railroad strikes that were happening kind of in pennsylvania at the time move into chicago and the rail workers waged this militant kind of strike slash battle they derailed an engine and baggage cars and they kind of they started these sporadic battles with the police who were trying to break them up and break up their striking and albert was a huge he was always involved with all of these these strikes these movements for laborers rights union rights right uh, and so as as this uh, railroad strike is heating up albert speaks to crowds of up to twenty five thousand people 
and he promoted peaceful ways of negotiating and his like the speaking that he did in the public appearances brought him really to the forefront of the anarchist movement in Chicago at this time. However, uh, his bosses weren't a fan. <laughs> uh, he, he was a writer at, at the Times, uh, but when he started to, to speak out loud and, and head up some of these movements, he was fired from his job at the Times and he was blacklisted in the Chicago printing trade. So basically he wasn't allowed to write anymore. And so Lucy opens a dress shop to support their family. And her and her friend Lizzie Holmes, who also in some sources was referred to as Lizzie Swank. I didn't dig further into that. They started hosting meetings for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, the ILGWU. And they were leading marches of seamstresses in Chicago. And Lucy, they also ended up having kids, her and Albert. So she's juggling her family, the kids, and all this political work, which is becoming kind of more and more heated as all of these labor movements are really starting to pick up some steam. Um, in 1883, Lucy and Albert helped found the International Working People's Association, the IWPA. Uh, and Lucy begins to write. She'd already been writing, but she begins to write for a bunch of publications supported by the IWPA, including The Socialist and The Alarm, which was an anarchist weekly published by the IWPA. Uh, and she really, in all her articles, she lambasted these bosses who were paying their workers substandard wages. Uh, one of her most famous articles is entitled Two Tramps. And what she advocated was, quote, propaganda by the deed, which was this philosophy that said that only violent direct action or the threat of such action will ultimately win the demands of the workers. Uh, and she was considered extremely dangerous. That, uh, more dangerous than her husband because she was super outspoken uh, on her beliefs and on the rights of the poor. And she also kind of in all of her literature, she really threatened like a she was like a threatening militant and radical woman who refused to just be a homemaker and stay at home. There's like some official documentation in late much later in the 1920s that described Lucy as, quote, more dangerous than a thousand rioters. Oh, wow. Because she was so, she was so verbose. And so that's a little bit of like a preview of what's to come. Good at igniting other people to action. Yes. So uh, at this, at this time period in general, uh, people were working six days a week, 60 hours, on average of like $1.50 an hour. They were getting paid nothing. And they weren't, they didn't have protections. This is really before unions kind of came into power in the country, right? So all of these bosses were paying nothing for people's exorbitant working hours. And this is cross-industry. So this is the railroads, this is the seamstresses, this is all of these low-level workers. And part of that was there was a huge influx of immigrants at this time. So immigrant labor was super, super cheap, but immigrants tended to be the poorest and the least represented, right? So they were working these crazy hours. Uh, and so both Albert and Lucy were, were huge advocates for them. And so as all of the energy is kind of building in the movement, on Saturday, May 1st, 1886, 350,000 workers across the nation walked off of their job in a mass general strike. Wow. And in Chicago alone, Chicago alone saw 40,000 workers striking. And it was this huge whirlwind. Uh, and all of the prominent radical leaders, such as Albert and, and Lucy, they were like, it's time for revolution. Like the time is ripe mm -hmm. because the people are hungry and they're in the streets and they're striking. And during this strike on May 1st, uh, 1886, Lucy and Albert supposedly lead a march of 80,000 people down 
North Michigan Avenue striking for workers' rights. Nice. Which is a huge amount of people. 1886, 80,000. Insane. So this is just like barely after slavery ended or like it, didn't it's end. It's not long. It yeah. It ended in name. Eman- emancipation if you're talking right. about Eman- emancipation. Yeah, emancipation. Yeah. And this of course, you know, this is obviously in the North versus the South where the South had its own set of issues. But here we're talking, you know, this movement specifically was immigrants in general, poor folks and the, the union laborers. Mm-hmm. So there's all this activity. There's this huge march, and there's a big protest at a. I'm glossing over some of the super details, and <laughs> so that this podcast doesn't get too long. But there's a huge protest at a mill, and a couple workers are killed by the police. And the radical advocates and and the workers in general were extremely incensed about it. And they organize a meeting at Haymarket Square in downtown Chicago. Is that a familiar name to you guys? Haymarket. That is a, a an no. important. Uh, American reference. Uh, So over 2,000 people show up to hear the speakers, even the mayor of Chicago. And the event was was really peaceful. Albert speaks in front of the whole crowd. Everything is peaceful. The police are there, but it seems pretty calm. And then the mayor leaves and the group starts to die down. It's like 10 o'clock at night. And suddenly this huge army of police starts marching towards the crowd and gives them an order to disperse. And while this is happening, while the police are like confronting this, what had been a really peaceful crowd, a bomb is thrown into the crowd of police, killing an officer and injuring a bunch more of them. And this huge riot breaks out and the police just start shooting everyone and the people are running. And one of the articles I found said that the police mostly shot themselves. Like they just were like shooting. It was like, it was like late at night. There wasn't great street lighting at this time period. And they just start shooting their revolvers everywhere. And there's just kind of terror in the streets. Seven people and four workers are killed and an estimated over 70 people are wounded. Mostly police... But possibly more. And and a lot of workers didn't seek medical attention because they were nervous about getting arrested and associated with it all. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people probably like went and got stitched up by their neighbors and did not, you know, go Mm -hmm. into the authorities. So possibly 70, but possibly way more were injured. And, and there's a lot of speculation about what actually happened that night. And the, the kind of generic belief is that Pinkerton's men were the ones who threw the bomb. Oh. And they were the one, they were the ones that were kind of sent. They were like the black water of the time period where they were hired by the rich bosses to break up these union mobs and stop the protests, right? And so there's a generic belief at this time that that is what happened, that a Pinkerton man threw the bomb. I think bomb. that's usually the case. Mm-hmm. Like the I feel like the the violence at protests is almost always instigated by people who want to discredit the protest. Yeah. But what happens uh, in this situation is that there is a huge lengthy trial and, and basically the anarchists and radical leaders are all arrested who were a part of the Haymarket protest that day. They're all arrested. Of course. Like nine, I think there were nine of them in total and they are accused of being the ones who threw the bomb immediately and the police oh. and the wealth so they were there to target them. The, exactly. And the, so the wealthy, the mob, you know, all the bosses, all the guys who don't want these labor unions to organize 
all like immediately are like, these guys are the ones who did it. And they put together this like f- absolutely faux trial where they they select this jury like completely illegally. They like stack it with people who are anti-radical and anti-union. And this like it's basically this like farce of a trial. Um, and it goes on and on. It's there's a huge like even just the Wikipedia page about the Haymarket riot and the trials is huge. And then, of course, there's a lot of other sources about it, too. But I should have said Albert turns himself in because he believe he knows that he's innocent. He knows that he wasn't a part of the bomb building and that none of the people he worked with did that. And he believes like, OK, I didn't do this. There's going to be no evidence that I did this. I had nothing to do. Oh. Um, there was there was one member that was connected to one of the parties, but not Albert's that they did find like bomb materials in his house but like but albert they were nev- never was, well who knows who knows i you know there's all this it's, it's insanity when right. you like look down this like <laughs> rabbit hole of like who what the evidence was all this stuff it's like crazy because basically all the evidence was just like thrown out by the cops who did not want you know cops were hurt cops were killed and so these people have to die. So basically, after this huge long trial, the men how convenient the for men them. accused for the a couple of them were released, but most of the men accused, including Albert, were sentenced to death by hanging. Oh, oh my God! And two of them were given life sentences, and one got fifteen years of prison uh, after an appeal. Uh, and the one Wait, you said so Albert was sentenced to Albert, death by hanging. Albert is sentenced to death by hanging. Really underestimated Oof. how racist the cops were. Oof. It not, I mean, Al, I mean, Albert's a white in. guy. Albert's not a black guy. He, you know, so he, it's not even racist. It's anti-union, right? Well, and it's anti anti-radical specifically. Like these these radical leaders at the time period. He's married. He's married to the to your broad, right? To Lucy. Yes. That's racism. <laughs> it, 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 and of course it is. I mean, Chicago cops. Let's be serious. Not <laughs> right, very yeah, much right. has changed. <laughs> I just read an article about like. I, re- I just read an article about a family in Atlanta, a mixed race couple who they got their house appraised. I saw that too in Florida. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And it came in 40% and it was less like, when they hid the evidence mm-hmm. that, that the wife is black. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. Isn't that so gross? Mm-hmm. So anyway, Lucy is, she is like stricken with grief about it, but also proud that her husband's like dying for his beliefs. But she goes around the country. So there's a lot, there's a period of time between when the trial concludes and when the death by hanging is supposed to happen. And so she goes around the country and she tours the country distributing information about the trial and how unjust it was and gathering funds for the families and the leaders and try to help them and try to help their appeal processes. And almost everywhere she went in the country, Lucy is greeted by armed police who barred her from going into meeting halls. They do uh. not want an anarchist speaking and and like inciting violence is what I'm sure they said to themselves, but they don't want those ideas right. to spread and they don't want this unjust uh. trial and all the racism and all the classism. And uh, in the process of... Uh, trying to to save all the lives of the men including her husband she also kind of created uh, or not created but she she ran into a big split within her own party uh so the this radical anarchist party there was a big segment of them that was called the knights of labor and she had belonged to this group for over 10 years but the knights of labor took a stand against the haymarket activists 
and the leader of the Knights of Labor, I guess I guess the, the summary version of it is that he believed in passiveness and a passive approach to the labor struggle, and he opposed striking. And so he did not want that trend to continue. So he stood against the defendants in the Haymarket trial. Uh, and he believed that doesn't sound like somebody who wants change. <laughs> and he well, and he believed that like the, the government should make an example of them. So Lucy's like, what Ooh. the fuck? So she's got this huge splare. Sounds like a double labor. agent yeah. to me. I so these labor movements have such fascinating organization. Like as you read about these, I think I say this like every single podcast now. I had no idea how splintered some organizations were, and sometimes we learn this like overview of them but that we don't know that there were so many dissenting voices you know mm-hmm. uh, amongst them even with like uh you know even with ella joe baker being against martin luther king and like there's all these divisions within it's so complicated in almost every case it's like never a unified voice it's very interesting so anyway so she had a break kind of with the knights of labor who were like one of the big portions of the anarchist movement but all of her all of her speaking and all of her money raising did not sway the Illinois courts and the governor of Illinois was under a a lot of pressure to execute the men. And four of them were executed, including Albert on November 11th, 1887. Oh man. Lucy brought her two kids with Albert to see their father one last time. But at the gate of the prison, she was arrested along with her kids, taken to jail, forced to strip, left naked with her children in a cold cell until the hanging of her husband was over. What? So the she the kids she they couldn't even see him the one last time. Oh, like arrested her and prevented her that's from seeing him one last so time. Oh my god, evil. that's horrible. When she was finally released, she she vowed to continue to fight injustice, even though her husband had been killed and she feared the same for herself. Oh man. Who? And she at this point. This was a, you know, definitely like all was rough. She lived in poverty, right? At this point, she was getting like $8 a week from the Pioneer Aid and Support Association, which was a group formed to support the families of the Haymarket martyrs. And really the Haymarket, they did become kind of martyrs of the movement and of the unions and like uh, these men who died unjustly. Um And there, there's lots of, you know, we can dig into it later. And li- like there were some investigations later that kind of let the men off the hook, but too little too late, they were mm. killed already and uh, all the damage was done, right? So uh, soon Lucy's affiliations with the labor struggle kind of shifted as, as the movements were shifting. And she, she got really frustrated with her own party because they kind of started to work together with the Democratic Party to sway the workers. And so they started to kind of combine forces. And Lucy hated that idea because at the time she felt the Democratic Party wasn't actually seeking to change what was happening with all the classism. It was just looking to make these like minor incremental shifts. The article I found said that, quote, she held an uncompromising syndicalist position that envisioned a voluntary associations of workers supporting and enforcing common regulations. Her political perspective was firmly based in class consciousness. She identified class hierarchy as the pivotal problem in the oppressive systems of her time. And because of this, she, she scoffed at reform measures within the existing government where the rich still lorded over the working class. Mm-hmm. So as her party kind of started to work with the Democrats, she was like, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with this. Well, this is also back before the Democratic Party was... 
I mean, it's not socialist, but it's more socialist in its policies nowadays. Back then, it was basically the the Republican Party. Yeah. I mean, not yeah. exactly. Well, and there was another. But, lo- so there was another party, the Labor Party, and basically the Labor Party was kind of like falling into the Democratic Party a bit at this time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I understand that correctly. I'm sorry to anybody who who understands politics much more than i do (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't i don't think it was super it was super long after this that the parties kind of merged yeah i think so too but she didn't want the she wanted the the labor party to continue on its own path and to do its own thing and to fight for this like full she she wanted the overhaul she wanted the revolution right i think Mm -hmm. i think she was right i think it probably should have been that i mean yeah it's it's a little disheartening to hear uh, to, to hear that quote from her of what she what she was after and feel like that's what we want today <laughs> it was to mm-hmm. like shit how far have we come it's yeah. a little and she just clearly identified that like that the changes that were going to be made were still holding up this system of class segregation which she was so vehemently fighting against oh you know she at this point she's like a pretty predominant voice in the anarchist radical movement she goes over to London um, and she speaks to the Socialist League of England, and that's in 1888, so two years after her husband died, or actually one year. The city like continuously tries to thwart her speaking events, and they fine her for selling copies of her pamphlet, Anarchism. She felt her free speech was constantly in struggle and in violation of her free speech, that she felt like her voice was continually blocked out. There was a ru- there was a ruling in 1889 that anarchists also have the right to free speech, but despite that, she felt like she always was fighting to have her voice be allowed to be heard at all. And specifically, the police just always were just trying to block the shit out of her. Um, she also she was invited to write for the French anarchist journal Le Temps Nouveau. <laughs> I don't speak French, but I, that sounded pretty good. Uh, <laughs> and then around 1890. Unionism got, there were a bunch of defeats that kind of happened in the union fight, um, including the scaling of the industrial workplace. And there are all these new parameters put in. But Lucy kind of tried to, tried to focus on the international movement more than the local movement at this point. Her With her good old friend Lizzie Holmes in 1891, she starts editing Freedom, a revolutionary anarchist communist monthly magazine. And she she's still proclaiming the labor struggles of 1892. Um, she talks about the Carnegie Steel Mills in Pennsylvania, the silver mines in Coeur d'Alene, uh, Idaho. And she keeps kind of trying to stoke the fire of revolution, that revolution's coming in her literature just on a more international level than local. And uh, worker conditions are getting worse for the railroads. In 1894, the Pullman workers go on strike in Chicago, led by Eugene Debs. But Cleveland, President Cleveland kind of crushes that. And for Lucy, this, it it was just like, she was still like super stoked that the the, the strike even happened and she still felt like the revolution was coming and she still was like holding the flame, right? The flame of the revolution. She, I do want to say, this is like a side note. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Emma Goldman at all. Do you guys know Emma Goldman? Yes, I was just thinking about her. So (laughs) there's like a huge note in Wikipedia and all the other sources uh, about her conflicts with Emma Goldman. (laughs) Oh. Because they technically were both part of the anarchist movement, right? Mm -hmm. Um. But she really, her and Emma really rubbed noses. Uh, it's interesting, like, which try to, I'm going to try to say it without judgment, but apparently <laughs> um, Emma Goldman had this kind of very generic 
view of anarchism. And for, for whatever reasons, she also tied free love in with the anarchy movement. And Emma so Goldman did? Emma Goldman did. So oh, a lot okay. of her speaking was also like very sexually charged and like this huge proponent of free love and the right to love who you want, man or woman or whoever. And this, you know, however many partners you want, this free love movement. Lucy was like, what the fuck, dude? Focus on the people and focus on the classism. <laughs> so Lucy's anarchism was like much more specific about the, the workers on the front lines and whereas Emma's was like much more vague and and very non-specific to the actual workers that Lucy was representing, I think that seems to typically be a complaint that people of color have against white activists. Oh, it's isn't that? It's like you you seem you seem like you're you you want to help, but you're misguided in what you think the problem. I mean, is. it's just, this is like another classic st- like example of like the white feminists ignoring all the struggles of everyone else except for their own weird desires. Although this isn't feminism, this is anarchism, which, you know, so slightly different story but like the actual same roots. In 1908, Emma was lecturing in Chicago and all of the newspaper headlines read that every popular anarchist had been present with the single exception of Lucy Parsons, with whom Emma Goldman is not on the best of terms. <laughs> wow. And, wow. And Emma was like, fuck you, Lucy, for not coming to my speech. And, and she was pissed about it. So Lucy, in the course of all these things, had published a book, The Famous Speeches of the Haymarket Martyrs, which was her non-fictional first-hand recounting of all the Haymarket Martyrs' final speeches in court. And Emma was like, fuck you, Lucy, for not coming to my speech. So as payback, she endorses a different book called The Bomb, which was a fictional account of the Haymarket affair. Uh. So she doesn't endorse Lucy's book. She endorses a fake version of the account. Uh, Lucy, uh, they, they like go back and forth. Emma accused Lucy of writing the cape of her husband's martyrdom, which is like the, could you say anything colder Ew. to somebody who like, uh, and Emma notoriously was a showboat. She loved being the center, center stage and having all the attention. And because of all of her discourse about sex and free love, she, she really went after, like Lucy went after the kind of the free love part of the movement. Uh, and, and Emma jumped all over Lucy's article about it. And she, she said in her reply article, quote, the success of the meeting was unfortunately weakened by Lucy Parsons, who, instead of condemning the unjustified Comstock attacks and arrest of anarchists, took a stand against the editor of the Firebrand magazine because he tolerated articles about free love. Dang. And then Lucy responded to this attack. Okay. But Lucy, to her credit, I, Lucy responds to this attack with, quote, the line will be drawn sharply at personalities, as we know these enlighten no one and do infinitely more harm than good, end quote. And I'm like, fuck yeah, Lucy. Lucy's like, no, Emma, I don't want any of this bullshit. I want none of your bullshit. Shutting it down. <laughs> In Emma's autobiography, she barely mentions Lucy, except for the presence of Miss Lucy Parsons, the widow of our martyred Albert Parsons at a labor convention. Um, she mentions that Lucy took, quote, took a, an active part of the proceedings. And later in the book, Emma acknowledged Albert Parsons for becoming a socialist anarchist and praised him for having, quote, married a young mulatto. Oh. And that is all she says about Lucy Parsons. This other giant of the movement. <laughs> it's like Emma wow. Goldman was like, oh, man, cold as ice. <laughs> wow. I, don't, I didn't know I didn't like Emma, 
Emma Goldman till I was reading this this historical recounting, and now I really don't like her. <laughs> it's so strange because I'm just thinking one. I guess what I knew of Emma Goldman, I'd never heard any of the free love stuff before. Like I'd never heard that mentioned in her. Also, I didn't realize she was a leader of the anarchist movement. Like I always heard of her as being, you know, like she was a, you know, pro-union. But I feel like now the term someone being an anarchist or someone being involved in the anarchist movement, I feel like that has almost taken on a different meaning now than yeah. it did then. You know, I think so. I think I've heard that I've heard your description of Emma, but not the more research I've done, the more I've understood like the the different lines. And I think she's still considered like Emma Goldman specifically is still considered like a quote feminist icon and feminist books and stuff like that. Um, but I think she very specifically like the anarchist movement is a very specific movement at this point in time in history. So it's really interesting to like have that. Anyway, I thought that was like, this was a total side story, but I thought it was really interesting. No, it's um, so interesting that like, we've never heard of Lucy Parsons. Cause I feel like you, mo- a lot of people have heard of Emma Goldman, but how many people have heard of Lucy Parsons? But Lucy, but uh, Emma Goldman was like the showboat who like made sure that she was the center. So that's why I think she got all this publicity, right? Mm, so interesting. True. And Lucy Parsons was so actively like, don't, don't, don't. It's not about yeah. me. It's about the movie. Exactly. Exactly. Well, back to Lucy's story. Enough about Emma yeah. fucking Goldman. <laughs> <laughs> so in uh, 1907 and 1908, there's these huge economic crashes. And Lucy starts organizing more against hunger and unemployment. In San Francisco, her and the IWW take over the unemployment committee. And they try to pressure the state to begin a public, work, public works project. San Francisco's... San Francisco, like, would not acknowledge the committee. As a result, there was a march of 10,000 people, uh, and, and the march was basically unemployed women. In January of 1915, Lucy leads a really successful hunger demonstration in Chicago. And these, this, her, her success with those demonstrations kind of pushed these other organizations, the American Federation of Labor, the Socialist Party, and Jane Addams' whole house, to participate in a bigger hunger demonstration on February 12th of the same year, so the next month. Um, and two weeks after the big demonstration, the government starts planning for a decentralization of hunger and employment policy. So they were able to kind of like make that policy more localized with all of their marching, which I find I find really encouraging nice. when you see progress happen because of the marches. It's very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Lucy in general, there's a quote about her belief about strikes. And she said, quote, my conception of the strike of the future is not to strike and go out and starve, but to strike and remain in and take possession of the necessary property of production. So she kind of was like this like forebearer of the sit down strikes later Mm. in the U.S. And workers factory takeovers in Argentina and other places around the world. Like she kind of carried that torch and lit that torch for all those other movements. Um, And then in 1925, she starts working with the newly formed Communist Party. She doesn't officially join the Communist Party till 1939, but she started working with them. And I think she kind of started to align with their kind of their revolution and and clash class consciousness of their movement um, since anarchism had kind of died down a little. She's not, there's a, there was a little bit of conflict in the sources about whether or not she officially joined the Communist Party or not because the Communist Party didn't acknowledge that she was a party member when she died, which is, I think, something they usually did. Hmm. Um, but some of the sources I found said that she did join the party, so... Uh, big question mark. And during this period of time, Lucy also works with the Coalition for International Labor Defense, which is uh, a communist party group. 
And this was a group that helped aid the Scottsboro Eight and Angelo Herndon cases. So these are the cases where black men were accused of crimes uh, and were, you know, like they were given the death penalty, but they were totally innocent. I don't feel like we have time to go into all those either, but look them up. The Scottsboro Eight is one of those big stories. It's like the Central Park Five before Central Park Five. So she it works hard for all those justice cases. And then I think we're just like... I feel like I hit all the major things that she did. She continues to to get out there. Through her 80s, she's still giving speeches in Chicago's Bughouse Square. Supposedly, her speeches inspired Studs Terkel. And even with her eyesight failing, she kept fighting against oppression. Her last major appearance is when she spoke at the International Harvester in February of 1941. And then on March 7th, 1942, at the age of 91, she is killed in an accidental fire in her house in Avondale in Chicago. Oh. Um, her lover... At Are we sure it was an accident? That's what I was thinking. I, none of my sources questioned that stuff. But we still have... Was she a smoker in bed? Is she one of those? (laughs) I don't know. But she probably wasn't. She was too smart for that, probably. Um, Mm. Her lover, George Markstall, he also died the next day from wounds he received trying to save her from the fire. Oh! That's heartbreaking. She was 91. P.S. She was 91. She wasn't like a spring chick. That might have been an axe. You know, like sometimes when people are older... You know, she might. It's have not been, always a conspiracy. It's not yeah, always. But I will say this: so her friend Irving mm-hmm. Abrams, um, upon hearing about the fire, he comes to rescue Lucy's personal library of fifteen hundred books, books about sex, socialism, and anarchy, and he finds that all her books were mysteriously stolen, along with all of her personal papers. Oh. It turned out that the FBI had confiscated all, all of the books and papers, but authorities would not admit it. So uh, it doesn't sound like an accident. That's Mm-mm. starting to sound like it wasn't an accident. She struggled against freedom of speech her whole life. And then even in her death, her papers were yes. taken away. Um, she is buried. Because when was that? When What year was that? Um, she died uh, in 1942. Uh, that's totally that that yeah she's come buried, on that's like she's buried near her right husband. around the time that they were going after everybody um, <laughs> we gotta erase this scourge in our american our great american country what <laughs> the fbi and the chicago police fuck you guys <laughs> like yeah. if it was an accident and then they managed to show up immediately and take all of her documents before anyone could get there. Yeah, Yeah, it's pretty impressive. It's shady as fuck. Uh, It's shady as fuck. Let me tell you, it's shady as fuck. Fucking Um, America, shit. Fucking America. She's buried by her husband. There's there's a Haymarket Martyrs Monument in Forest Park, Illinois, and she is buried there with him. I want to close the segment about her with this quote from her, because I just think it's great. From an article she wrote titled, I am an anarchist. I am an anarchist. I suppose you came here, the most of you, to see what I, a real, live anarchist, look like. I suppose some of you expected to see me with a bomb in one hand and a flaming torch in the other, but are disappointed in seeing neither. If such has been your ideas regarding an anarchist, you deserved to be disappointed. Anarchists are peaceable, law-abiding people. What do anarchists mean when they speak of anarchy? Webster gives the term two definitions, chaos, and the state of being without political rule. We cling to the latter definition. Our enemies hold that we believe only in the former. 
Liberty has been named anarchy. If this verdict is carried out, it will be the death knell of America's liberty. You and your children will be slaves. You will have liberty if you can pay for it. If this verdict is carried out, place the flag of our country at half-mast and write on every fold, shame. Let our flag be trailed in the dust. Let the children of working men place laurels to the brow of these modern heroes, for they committed no crime. Break the twofold yoke. Bread is freedom, and freedom is bread. There she is. All right, Lucy. Lucy Parsons. Guys, I mean, I don't even feel like I have to ask, but was she a broad? <laughs> oh, my God. Absolutely. Come on. Total broad. How? Spent her whole life fighting capitalism. <laughs> that's, a, that's a broad. Such a broad. Power to the people. Power to the people. We have the power. <laughs> I'm so mad I've never heard of her before. Like, Me too. I, well, I have the same feeling we get at the end of these so often. I'm just like, how... Uh, that's so weird. Her, her all of her person. books and papers were compensated. How weird we don't know more yeah. about her. <laughs> and and during the exact period of time that J. Edgar Hoover's number one priority was to discredit black leaders. What are the odds of that? What are the odds? Thanks you guys for, for listening to another episode of Broads You Should Know. Uh, we will see you next week with the story of another broad you should know. If you want to support Broads You Should Know, you should leave us a review on iTunes or tell your friends, follow, subscribe, etc., etc. Uh, you also can reach out to us on Instagram at Broads You Should Know, or you can email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Also, come visit us at broadsyoushouldknow.com because we actually have um, an online database of all the broads, and you can search through all of these amazing, badass women that we have talked about so far, and come uh, get your badass woman fix at broadsyoushouldknow.com.